I'm Jill Shaw, and I'm here with Ross Wilson to bring you an update on what happened last night during the Boston Public Schools August 19th school committee meeting. Public school in the city of Boston will start at some point in September, and last night's meeting was a mix of discussion about back to school, BPS's new policy on sharing student information, and changes to the school's district on early childhood. Good morning, Ross. Good morning, Jill. How are you? I'm well. That was um, that was a long. That was a discussion um, that kind of went in circles last night. I felt. How did you feel about the conversation on back to school? Yeah, I'm always. I always get excited. I, I got to tell you, Jill, when we have a school committee meeting, especially getting closer to the start of school, um, yeah. I get excited because you know I want to hear the details and um, I think about getting my own kids out the door to school. And uh, last night it didn't uh, didn't fulfill my my excitement. Um, it, it it actually just again raised more questions than anything. And um, the school department uh, has doesn't have an answer when school's going to start. Uh, it's supposed to start September 10th, but they've applied for a waiver to, to start September 21st. Uh, but mm-hmm. we don't know if the waiver has been approved by the department. They applied to who, to the department, the, the department of education in this for this at the state. Right. So, so the city of uh, the school department has applied for a waiver um, that would essentially take away 10 days of student learning time um, from students and apply it to adult professional development to prepare for the school year. And so they've, the reason um, they had to get a waiver is because the school year, as the commissioner noted, the commissioner of education noted across the state must begin by September 16th. And the Boston public schools is proposing that it start later than that, September 21st. Um, but Jill, it's not only that, like we, we have questions around when the school year, we don't know when the school year is going to start. And quite frankly, we have no idea if it's going to be remote, if it's going to be hybrid, um, and, and what that's going to look like. And so we, we heard a lot from the superintendent and we'll review all this, um, on this podcast, but I gotta, I gotta tell the the listeners here, um, don't expect to have many answers. Um, there's not a lot of clarity. It, It sounds like more people are doing things. It's unclear, um, as to whether or not they're doing them in the schools, sounds like we are doing things like window repair in the actual schools, but in terms of setting up classrooms and things like that, it wasn't clear based on Sam DePina's report, the chief operating officer, that things are actually happening out in the field. He showed a lot of pictures of things that had been set up in the bowling building, which we'll put up on the blog for the podcast. Right. So Jill, let's, let's start off with, with, with hearing from the superintendent. Um, where, where she's being very clear that she understands that people are apprehensive. In fact, about 55,000 students are, are wondering, when will my school year start? Right. Let's play a quote from the superintendent. And I've heard loud and clear that they want to believe us and that they want to trust us, that our bathrooms are going to be clean, that our windows are going to be replaced, uh, that our HVAC systems will be up, and that teachers will have uh, what they need to be prepared for the academic uh, school year. And then, and then Jill, the superintendent, so the superintendent saying, basically, look, I've done all these community meetings. I hear people are anxious. Um, I hear you loud and clear and, and people want to trust the school system. Um, and I believe this meeting was intended to get more trust from people in the school's reopening. Um, um, but I, I don't believe it's actually achieved that. Uh, but let's hear also from the superintendent about this extension that she requested 
um, to actually take away student learning time. You know, even though we've had the biggest interruption to student learning we've ever had before in the history of education. Um, but in Boston, we would like 10 less days of student learning uh, so that teachers can get um, a, a feeling of comfort in their school buildings. Let's play the quote. So part of the guidance that the commissioner gave us was a little bit of an extension um, of, so that we could be prepared. He worked with the state union, teachers union, to be able to negotiate um, uh, lesser days that would be required in the calendar year for students. They were going from 180 to 170. What that then did is give us an additional opportunity to provide for some professional development for our teachers. As you know, we bring them back on September 8th and September 9th. Uh, and that was already calendared uh, for them to come, but this will give them uh, several more days to get prepared so that they can uh, be in the buildings and they can uh, see them for themselves and feel more comfortable and get settled in, as well as uh, uh, meet and get professional development around the new technology and then also the new safety protocols that they will need. And then, and then Jill, the superintendent went on to, to say, um, we're not quite sure what the model for reopening will be. We're not sure if it will be remote. We're not sure it will be hybrid. Um, and she, again, talks about following the science. Let's play the quote. Choose remote, and that is for five days home um, online learning. We will provide the computer and Wi-Fi to families that need it uh, and ensure that they have access. Uh, there's also the opportunity for in-person uh, at-home learning. Now, we are still trying to look at the science and measure that and see see about how we might do that. Um, and that is uh, the, the work ahead in the next um, next few days here as we begin to really uh, dig into the, the latest numbers. So Jill, the, the superintendent has said, you know, th these last few quotes, basically, we don't know yet when the start of school is. We don't know yet how we're going to judge if we're going to go back to hybrid or not, um, but we are going to follow the science without any clear sort of numbers of that. Right. And then um, the superintendent went on to say, but everything is okay. You know, we are, uh, she had her, her team present um, a series of updates uh, around what was happening with facilities. So let me start there. Her team, um, and we'll post the presentations on our, on our, um, our podcast site here, but, but essentially the, the superintendent said, we're repairing windows, um, we are ordering fans. We're ordering masks. Um, the the head of uh, health for the school system says we're we're following protocols. We're working with the Health and Human Service Department of the City of Boston. Um, and then we moved on to the academic team, which said we're going to have more data, and you know this is not going to be an emergency school year. We're going to have a real school year this year, and we're going to start with high standards. Um, and, and really work with our students to achieve high standards. And this is business as usual in our school district. Um, Wait, can I stop you for a second too? Because to go back to what you said about right at the beginning when you were playing quotes and um, you were talking about how we've asked for an extension for the state, you and I had a conversation a, a few days ago about when do teachers' contracts start and why wouldn't, why wouldn't the school system be working on curriculum plans now so that they don't need this extension that bleeds into student learning time. It, it, can you just kind of explain that? Because it, it doesn't make a lot of sense that we need a longer extension when when teachers are already under contract. 
Well, well, Jill, I mean, the, the, the contractual year for teachers, the first day of school starts September 8th, teachers report back, which is, which is traditional in Boston public schools. It's always right after Labor Day. Um, and, and then the school year ends sometime the end of June. Um, teachers are paid for all 12 months. So they're a 12 month salary, uh, but they, they're not contractually, they do not contractually have to work during the summer. Uh, right. Teachers work 185 days a year. And students are typically in, or should be in school for 180 days of learning time. So there's always five days um, that teachers are paid to do professional development and classroom setup. Um, that being said, Jill, there's, we've had a history in our school district in Boston Public Schools of doing professional development over the summer. Um, in fact, you know, many, many teachers have done professional development over the summer. They're always willing to do so. Um, but it seems like it seems like we've just missed an opportunity of you know two months of um, idle time that we could have been doing a whole lot around training. Um, in fact, Jill, as you know, we could have had every teacher uh, go in their buildings and set up their classrooms. Um, right. In fact, you know what we've been hearing is principals haven't been able to go into their buildings. Neither has have teachers. So we've sort of held people out of their school buildings. Um, I don't know why, but it, but it seems like rather than uh, uh, keeping people out of buildings and out of prep- preparation, uh, we should have been engaging them in, in doing just that this summer. So what's interesting, because I know now you're going to lead into um, uh, some points that Andrea Zayas was making, who's the head of academics for the school district, and um, they're counterintuitive to what you're saying, you know, especially if we could be taking advantage of teachers desire to be planning um, for the upcoming school year. And I think a need for students to be in school, not not for us to be pulling more school days away from them. So let's play the Andrea Zayas um, clip. We must design equitable instructional recovery, knowing that we have to focus on Maslow before Bloom. And what we specifically mean by that is in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, students and staff must feel healthy and safe before they feel cared for, engaged and have a sense of belonging, and that that foundation has to be set before anybody's ready to learn or teach. So our district's approach will be actively anti-racist and culturally responsive in order to be effective and in order to ensure positive health, learning, and life outcomes for our students. So, so Ross, what do you think? Yeah, so so Jill, I, I believe uh, so. Andreas Zayas is, is the chief academic officer for the Boston Public Schools, um, and and she and she has a, a, a great team that she bought to this presentation last night. Um, and she, it's, it's so clear that their head and hearts are in the right places here. Um, yeah. They're trying to prepare the tools. They're saying we need to take care of our students' basic needs first. We need to check in with our students and and. Um, Make sure they're being cared for. They have housing. They have food. They're they're loved and and they're cared for before we can engage them in deeper learning. Um, so I agree with all of this. I think mm-hmm. it's really important. And, and as a as as Andrea says, um, we have to start to meet Maslow's needs before we can uh, move to the Bloom's taxonomy of deeper learning. All of that is wonderful. Well, and, all, and you know, this is the same point that the teachers have been bringing up because you know that um, when I interviewed the head of the Boston Teachers Union last week, she was she was saying the same thing, that we have, this is a split system in that some kids and some families, uh, we have a situation where their basic human mean, needs have not 
been met. Um, and we're also trying to teach them. And so it's very hard to apply academic rigor on top of a situation where, you know, someone is not even stable. And so that was, that was sort of how she was setting up the approach to the new year. But as you pointed out to me offline, it's, but so where's the there there, right? Like where are the actionable things that we should be doing now to, to ensure that we know where our students are and that we start serving them? Right. right. It, it would be lovely if we were using this time, Jill. I mean, I would love to hear a plan about how every teacher is going to check in with every one of their students and perform a needs-based assessment or um, have virtual home visits or, you know, basically set up a plan for what we're going to do to connect with our students and connect with them now. You know, we, yeah. we, we have, we've had students isolated for almost six months, many in their homes with lack of any program, no summer programs, no summer jobs. No, no ability to go out and socialize with their peers, their families feeling like they need to be safe. And, and, and because of the coronavirus, because our, the, the uh, people of color in our, in our city have been impacted um, disproportionately by this virus. And yet we're just wasting time. Like, right. wh- why are we not checking in with our kids now? Right. Why are we taking away 10 days of learning time for our students when we've had the biggest gap in learning we've ever experienced? It's just counterintuitive. All of this is counterintuitive to what you would expect to see a response from a large urban district. Um, and I got to say, Jill, when you look at other urban districts around the country, you see a much deeper response here. Um, yep. you, you hear about, you know, being very proactive in approaches to reaching out to kids. In Boston, we hear about words and we don't hear about actions. And yeah, I think you were, we're going to post on the blog um for this podcast as well, the pictures that you took this morning, you went out to um, take a look at what they were serving today for school food because the superintendent, again, gave an update on how much food is being served. And in terms of meeting basic human needs, the, the two things are not coming together. You know, the, the words that she's saying in terms of the number of meals that we've served versus the quality of the meal, if you want to call it that, um, that we're handing out to kids, it's, it's, it, they don't meet up. And so yeah. we go right back to, are we even meeting students' basic human needs? Are we even, you know, climbing the rungs of Maslow's hierarchy? Yeah, Jill, don't get me started on school food, but I, I got to say, you know, it, 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 I, I would uh, challenge anybody in the Boston public schools to uh, survive on the meals that Boston is providing. Um, and I would, you know, try to survive in a day or a week of this food um, and I guarantee you, and I, again, open challenge to anybody, please eat, yeah. go out and eat school food uh, as if you are reliant upon school food and see how you feel. And I got, you know, Jill, two or three days a week, uh, I, I get school meals every day uh, to mm-hmm. see, see what is being served. Um, two or three days a week, it is a shelf stable graham cracker. Uh, there is sun butter and uh, maybe a shelf stable cheese stick. That is the, uh, the pride of our school system leadership in saying they've served 1.6 million shelf-stable graham crackers and cheese sticks. If that's what we're prideful of, that is not taking care of the Maslow's basic needs of our students. Um, It is, again, it is words saying we've done something, we've done 1.6 million meals, but not getting any, not even discussing the quality of the meals that we're providing. It, It is atrocious to me. So this is actually a great setup for where school committee took this discussion. And Ms. Robinson um, kind of kicks things off by asking exactly the same question that she asked at the last school committee meeting, which was, 
where are the examples of what we're going to be doing this year? And so let's play that quote. Um, how close are we to having um, example schools that are set up that we can really see how all of this plays out? I know we talked about that at our last meeting that you would actually set up a whole school so that there could be some walkthroughs to really see this work in place. And then as the superintendent goes to respond to her, it, she doesn't seem to have answers. And so she looks to Tammy Poost and Sam DePina, who are on her operating team, for the answers, um, but she doesn't seem to have the answers. Let's play that quote. Here's what the superintendent says in response. Um, uh, that might be a, um, for Sam uh, yeah. or, or Tammy Poost might have an answer to that. I know that we were working toward that. I just don't know the date, Ms. Robinson. I can certainly get that for you. So, so Jill, Jill, what's important here um, is that the last school committee meeting, uh, there, there was a question of how many classrooms have been set up in BPS. Um, and there was, there was also a question of how many classrooms are there in the Boston Public Schools which right. nobody knew the answer to. Um, but then w- when they asked how many classrooms have been set up, it was six or seven classrooms have been set up out of the thousands of classrooms across the school district. Um, and then there was a, a, a suggestions made by the school committee saying, maybe you should set up more classrooms and then you should create a video like other school districts have done so that parents can have more trust in the school system, that they could see the buildings being set up, they can see the protocols, maybe even bring people around to show them what it looks like. Um, right. And the school system replied last last school committee meeting, we're working on that. We should have that in the next in the next few days. Um, and then Miss Robinson asked the same question again this meeting, um, again, a couple of weeks before school starts and uh, crickets. Right, right. So so then um Sam had also, when, when Sam DePina gave his presentation, he had also talked about needing at least one window to open in each classroom. And that didn't seem to be sufficient to Ms. Robinson. And so here's what she said. The other is um, concern about the ventilation. Um, one working window is of a big concern to me. I know during this weather, um, having one working window in my kitchen is not enough for me, one person. So how do we come to the conclusion that one working window in a large classroom um, would be adequate? So, so um, Sam answers are, but <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of numbers. There's a lot of numbers and it, it kind of ends up, I don't know, if you take those numbers, it sounds like there's still a lot of windows that don't open. Well, let's play, let's play the quote from uh, Mr. DePina answering the questions about the windows. So thank you, Ms. Robinson. Um, so just to clarify, we have 20, about 27,500 windows in the district, and most of our classes have more than one window um, in them, and most of them are working. So with the round one phase of analysis that we conducted, uh, we've only identified about 300 um, classrooms where one was not working, um, and we're fixing all those now. So the, the idea here is that there already currently exists more than one window in a classroom. They're on average about four to five. Um, um, per classroom, most of those are working, so they're all there's plenty of air already going to the windows. We're just making sure at least one is open. Then phase two of that work is to repair the seven thousand that we've also identified. On top of that, so we know that there. I believe um, what what we know, Jill, is that there's about uh, twenty seven thousand windows, as Sam said, in in the district. Uh, 
300 classrooms don't have one window that open. So we have an issue with 300 classrooms don't have an open window. Again, school starting supposedly in a few weeks. And then, um, and then, so Sam said, well, as soon as we get to those 300 and open one window, then we'll fix the remaining 7,000 windows. In that aren't building. working. Um, right. it, it is too. It, 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 Jill, the, the, this is all about trust. Right. This is about trust. This is about parents like me or like my friends in Mattapan trusting to send their kids back to the Boston public schools. Um, and I think, and, and Dr. Coleman, who's on school committee, has asked this question many times, but he asks it again last night, which is, you know, what are the criteria that you are using to make decisions around whether or not the school stays open or close, closes if there are cases um, in the schools, et cetera, et cetera. So let's play that quote. Um, what are criteria for deciding when a school, a classroom, the district's at threat so that, you know, what are, what are the kind of criteria that can be used to make those very difficult decisions if we can't contain it? You know, what, what's the, you know, the R, the R score that we're going to identify saying in this school, this community, this classroom, the transmissions are too high and we have to back off. So I haven't seen that and I missed it. I apologize. But, and if it's not there, I don't need to, I don't expect you to determine it tonight, but that'd be, I think that'd be useful for us to have to have a sense of what the criteria reference is for those decisions. Right. So, so, um, so again, Dean Coleman's asking, you know, what is, what are the, the metrics? How will we know? Um, the head of health services responded by saying they're going to follow the protocols, collaborate with the uh, health and human service offices in the, in the city of Boston and a line, the three words that we've heard over and over and over again from everybody who says, trust me, is we're going to follow the science. Right. Which is, it's a, it's a scary thing when you don't know what science they're following. What, what exactly is the science? Because I'd love it for them to just lay it out, put it up on the website. Well, um, yeah. So well, part, of the, part of the science is about testing, right? And, and Michael O'Neill asks about that because even, even in our, our city is pretty big. And so there's variation in the data inputs for, I guess, the science, um, which vary greatly across the city, but is guided by one district, you know, in BPS. And so he talks about the variation, the variation of um, COVID rates across the city. Let's play that quote. It's interesting, though, that the state guidance, at least for Boston, um, has us in yellow. But when, as has been pointed out to us by one of our science teachers, interestingly enough, that, you know, the neighborhoods that our youth are in seems to be disproportionately more towards red versus the city overall. And so are you, are you looking at it that way? And are you thinking about a neighborhood by neighborhood decision? Or at this point, are you still focused more on a city decision? And the superintendent has an answer, which um, is that she's relying on the Department of Public Health in the city to help her figure this out. Let's play that. Well, you know, that is something that I actually presented to the city council as well. Uh, last Wednesday, we did discuss it. And I am working with Chief Martinez on our neighborhood numbers. As you know, our neighbor, our numbers do fluctuate in neighbors um, in neighborhoods. And so we see them go up and we see them go down. They also are linked to our testing rate. 
So we want to make sure that we're able to test um, more regularly and that we're testing our population. Um, in each of the neighborhoods, you know, Mattapan had been under tested, then you put in more efforts and you start testing and you want to make sure that those positivity rates stay the same over a seven period, uh, seven day period. And so I'm in, I'm in constant contact with Marty almost every single day, um, looking at those measures and that science and making sure that it's solid um, in terms of our neighborhoods, as well as our citywide number. So, so this is really, this is an important part of this, this, this question. You know, what, what we do know is in East Boston, the rates of uh, COVID positive are, are much higher than um, some other parts of the city. Right. And um, it, it, so the, somewhere around 8% when I looked last. And so you, the, the question is, you know, the, with the state numbers showing Boston is yellow or maybe it's red in some neighborhoods, it, it should this be treated as a neighborhood by neighborhood approach um, versus uh, saying the whole city is in the same state and is, is all ready to go back or not all ready to go back. And so right. it's a big question that is being asked by Michael O'Neill and um, we didn't get a clear answer. No, it's a really important question to, ha- to have things like that ironed out. So, so as the school committee meeting moved into public comment, there were many comments on the topic of returning to school, um, many questions about the details of that, how we'll go back to school, what it's going to feel like, on which days, which students will go back, which buildings can actually be opened um, and maintained safely, etc. There was one BPS teacher who, and, and all of those quotes are worth playing, but I, I, we felt like this BPS teacher summarized them pretty well. So let's play that quote. Since the second draft, outlines are a joke in response to raised concerns not because they're terrible in theory but because anyone who has attended or worked in a bps school knows any protections the district promises is a is laughable the situation we're in is due to decades of unfulfilled promises from the district and with a few weeks out to the start of school we know for a fact that we will be sent into unsanitary unsanitary excuse me unsafe environments if we return as a hybrid model yeah so so jill you know we th- this does summarize much of of the public comments we heard um uh which was saying look you're you're saying trust us we've done all these things um but our experiences have differed you know we've been in buildings across bps for for years and years that haven't been cleaned appropriately, that haven't been maintained appropriately, that don't have effective airflow. Um, and you're just kind of telling us that, don't worry, everything has been changed and rectified over the past few weeks. Trust us. Right. Um, and this is this is just a massive uh, concern for, for the district. And I have to say, Jill, that, um, you know, I, I used to work in Boston Public Schools. I don't know if you know that, but I was uh, at one point I was the deputy superintendent for administration. I was, you know, so I knew, I know a lot about these issues and I know that they, these issues can't be resolved in two months. In fact, we had a build BPS plan that we, that the city rolled out a couple of years ago and said it was, it would take 10 years to rectify the issues in our really outdated buildings. Right. So let's not pretend that we've solved every issue in BPS and it's all fine now in two months. Let's own the fact that we may have deeper concerns and figure those out. But let's not rush back and say everything is fine here. Um, 
And, you know, and we also know that teachers and principals haven't even seen their buildings yet. Um, so, you know, the other thing, Jill, that came out, you know, as I was listening to the school committee last night, um, I got a survey for my kids asking if I was going to send them back hybrid or remote. And I listened very diligently to the school committee meeting, trying to figure that question out. Um, yeah. And I have no further uh, evidence that the school system is anywhere near uh, ready to return um, than before this meeting. Yeah. Well, I think I think that wasn't just you. I heard from a number of friends who have kids who are in this in the district, and um, they're so confused. Actually, they they had they have no idea how to how to answer that question um, because they just don't have enough information. It's kind of like you know, and it, it's probably a different answer based on which school you're right. in. Right. So we, we so we have a high school issue um, that I, and on page eighty, well, maybe a different thirty eight or forty of the guidance. I forget which page it is. Um, has uh, a, a paragraph on high schools and the guidance reads, you know, we're not really sure what to do with high schools yet. It, it, it says uh, to the extent possible, school leaders should build schedules to prioritize one-on-one and small group advising on campus, but it may be advisable to prioritize core instruction in remote settings. So students can re- uh, continue to participate and move towards their graduation requirements. There was no mention of anything around high school. How do we know if we're supposed to send our kids back to high school when we have no idea what the model or the schedule is? It, it just there was it just makes no sense. So here, Jill, I have a recommendation yes. for the school system and the school committee. Um, every every school has a school site council. On the school site council are groups of of teacher leaders, of parent leaders, community members, and in some cases, students. I think next week all of our buildings should be opened up to the school site council members and they should walk through their building and they should take videos and pictures of every building across the school system. And those videos and pictures should be sent to all the parent groups and in that, in that school and, and basically say, and all the teachers and basically say to everybody, here's what we learned from our walkthrough. Here's the protocols that are in place. Here's what the classrooms look like. And we feel comfortable or not comfortable sending kids back to school at our school. They should test the windows, right? Parents should go in and test the windows. They should judge if the ventilation is efficient or not in the building, right? And and that's what needs to happen at this point because the school system has failed to show examples of schools. They have showed examples of the bowling building being set up, but they have not showed examples of schools. Now's the time to open up our buildings, have parents, teachers, students and community members tour the buildings with the principal and make their own judgment if their buildings are safe or not. Yeah. I mean, right. They know their buildings best. And you're, and you're saying to do that in a, in an organized way with a set of folks who are already affiliated with the schools um, to who are very sensitive to the needs of the student population, the family population, as well as they, they know the school, they know the buildings. And so they right. can really and, go and in. They should and review the schedule and, and know that if, is it possible to yeah. send kids back hybrid or not? Right. I like your I like your proposal. Um, so then, so so this this went on for for a while at school committee, um, and then um, the new policy on student information sharing had happened um, earlier before comments. Ross, can you just talk a little bit about the new policy? There were definitely um, community members who spoke for and against it. Um, do you want to add some clarity? To that conversation? 
Sure. So, so this has been a topic for the last few months around um, around concern that uh, that there is information sharing going on between school staff and the Boston Police Department, um, which was jeopardizing some of our students who may uh, not be um, uh, in our country legally, um, and and so. There, there was a lot of question. There's been a lot of questions around and concern that um, students may be set up to be deported um, should uh, information about them be shared with the with the with the uh, Boston public uh, the Boston Police Department. It, it's just it, it, this is we're not keeping our students safe if we're um, sharing information uh, about them that does not has to do with student discipline and not about. Uh, legal or illegal uh, status. And so the policy last night was tightened up and basically was said, we're going to share less information with the Boston public, with the Boston police department. We're going to make sure we tighten up on who is going to report to the, to the police department. Um, And there'll only be a couple of people who will be able to report, um, uh, I guess, confidential information to the police department about a student and everybody else would just report uh, the basic information they know about the student. Um, this this will all be will, will revolve around training of staff to make sure they're following that guidance. Um, so we'll have to keep track of you know has training occurred and and has the policy when the policy is implemented this year. Um, and also this needs to be negotiated with the Boston Police Department. Um, it's not it's not clear to me that this policy is actually uh, all set until the police. Um, uh, I guess you know, sign off and negotiate right. with the the school department on it. Right, that makes that makes sense. Um, there were then two approvals of policies that were previously presented. One was um, the superintendent's review, which was presented last school committee, and then also um, a policy for the temporary suspension of the maximum age assignment, um, which passed. Uh, Mr. Tran abstained from the superintendent's review vote. I, I thought that was interesting. I, I, it didn't. I wasn't clear how one could abstain from that vote, or or, or on what premise he abstained. Um, yeah. So, so Jill, the, the, there was an abstent. There was two abstentions last week. Or I last know. Week meeting about the McCormick uh, yard being being. Um, you can't abstain just because you don't want to vote. Right. And so the reason for abstention last meeting was because it was the the members said it was too hard. It was they could see pros and cons. Well, that life is hard, um, yeah. and the job of a school committee member is hard, and you have to make a decision. You can't abstain because you're conflicted between two options. You make a choice and decide. Um, right. And Mr. Tran, not to you know not to um, uh, uh, be negative here, or, uh, but. You know, I, I believe Mr. Tran voted abstain because he disagreed with the superintendent's overall rating and potentially wanted her to have a higher rating. And if that was the case, then he should vote no. no. Right. I don't. Yes, um, exactly. So, well, it's interesting because I, at the end of school committee, there was a discussion um, about Ms. Robinson asked a question about policies and, you know, do could we have a published book of the policies on which we operate? You just have to wonder whether or not. They're following the the uh, correct guidance of how well, the school well, committee should operate. Speaking of that, Jill, almost every other school committee across the state has voted on school reopening plans. Yeah, they, they've yeah. decided. The school committee has decided: do we go back full time, remote, or um, hybrid? Right. And Boston is one of the 
few, if only, place across across the state where the school committee is choosing not to vote. Right. That essentially, it's they're they're saying it's a superintendent's decision. Um, yeah. I would argue this is a pretty big deal. Um, yeah. And school committee should not only ask the hard questions, but should be responsible for voting on what is the safe way to return kids to school. Yeah. Right. And not abstain. I, I agree with you. I, I think it's a really good, a really good point. So the last thing that happened at school committee um, was that there was a policy presentation on universal pre-K. And as some of our listeners will remember back in 2013, our mayor, Marty Walsh, promised universal pre-K in his victory speech. Together, we can improve our schools, every school. We can close the achievement gap. Make sure preschool kindergarten is available for all four-year-olds in every neighborhood. So, so we're now in 2020. We don't have universal pre-K yet. But what do, you, what do you think? Do you feel like this is pushing things to where we need to get to? Well, well, Jill. So we do not have universal pre-K yet. So, so what that means is uh, we have K one seats in the city of Boston. Um, mm-hmm. and those are not guaranteed to families, and which is pre-kindergarten, right? Pre-kindergarten, right? K-1. And then we have yeah. kindergarten, which is K two, and that is guaranteed to every student across the city of Boston. And what Mayor Walsh has said um, a number of years ago was that he was going to have universal pre-K in our city, just like New York City has universal pre-K. Right. We have yet to achieve that vision, but we've made a substantial progress using community-based organizations to provide pre-K. And these are not schools, but they're community partners who provide, um, who provide pre-K and they adopt the curriculum for BPS. And uh, I, I have to say that uh, Dr. Sachs and his team have done a, an amazing job of increasing um, the amount of students who have options for pre-K. And they've also just increased the standards and alignment all the way through grade two. They've just done a phenomenal job. Last night, this policy um, basically was saying, we're going to give an advantage um, in the lottery system to kids who are in community-based organization pre-K so that they can have a, um, a, a preference seat in a Boston public school. Whereas before, they had, you know, if you sent your child to a K-1 community-based organization seat, you really had, it was very difficult to get into a K-2 seat of your preference. So now there'll be a wait for these students. Um, where they'll have preference into K-2 seats in their preferred schools. I believe this is a good policy. Um, We'll have to look at the numbers a little bit more and and understand it a little better. Um, But this is a step in the right direction to getting more seats and parents to see that there are more options for K-1 across the city. Okay, so that's good. Um, Maybe a little slow moving as everyone kind of alluded to, but it's good. Yeah, it's it's, it's taken about five years to get here, but... um, but we're here. There we go. Thank you for listening to last night at school committee. We will be back on September 17th. Uh, School committee meets next on the 16th. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston students. Have a great day.